Corinthians chapter 3, the rest of it, and a couple of scriptures in chapter 6. Title of today's message, this, there are several titles, but this one's the one I like. This is my B title, The Society Inhabited by the Spirit of God. That's you and me. Hallelujah. Let's read about it. Verse 16. Oh, by the way, do a study on all of the 316s of the Bible. It's really cool. Never mind. All right. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Stop deceiving yourselves. If you think you're wise by this world's standards, you need to become a moron. <laughs> You need to become a fool to be truly wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God, as the scriptures say. He traps the wise in the snare of their own cleverness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. He knows they are worthless. So don't boast about following a particular human leader. For everything belongs to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life and death or the present and the future. Everything belongs to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 18. Run from sexual sin. Can I just say, can we just make a pact here together? No, nobody in this sanctuary will ever again have sex outside of marriage. Amen. Lord, we covenant with you. We're going to run from sexual sin. Inside marriage, glorious. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Do what the Bible says. Be fruitful and multiply. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. All right, verse 19 and 20. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Lord, we humble ourselves. We sacrifice our hearts and our lives and our body, mind, and soul, and spirit to your service, to your glory, to your honor. Use us mightily in these last days, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you're seated. So in just a few moments, right after this service, all of you who are members, we ask you to uh, exit the sanctuary and go sign up. Make sure we know you're here. We have to have a quorum, but we're going to have our stakeholders meeting, and this is the best report we've ever had. To God be the glory. Hallelujah. Can you imagine that coming through? All we've come through the last couple of years, this is the best report we've ever had. Some, you know, sometimes I think it's just... Um, we look at the size of this sanctuary, and, and it's big enough to 
feel cold because it's not, you know, completely full. And that bothers so many of you, probably because it's bothered me all these years. But um, what do you think would happen if I put curtains up down that aisle and down that aisle and we were all bunched together and we, you would feel like, wow, look at us, we're amazing, this church. We're fan- look at us, every seat's full. God is moving. Well, let me tell you something. Every seat's not full, but God's still moving. <laughs> Absolutely, we want every seat full. We, people, one, somebody asked recently, what are we doing for evangelism? You ought to read this report. I personally have invited over 1,000 people to church this year, in the year 2022. Um, we're doing great things. We're out there. We're telling people about Jesus. You know what? It does remind me of what my friend recently said. Um, my friend that was here a couple of weeks ago, David Walker, he said to all the pastors one day, he says, guys, get your heads up. It's the fourth quarter. You're going back out there like we're behind. We're way ahead. Trinity, we're way ahead. We are the people of God. We are the society inhabited by the Spirit of the living God. So there was this man named Origen, and he lived in the second century. He was one of the early church fathers, probably a disciple of perhaps uh, one of the disciples, but if not, at least a disciple of a disciple. And he said this, we are most of all God's temple when we prepare ourselves to receive the Holy Spirit. Are you prepared right now for all of the, that the Holy Spirit has for you in your heart, in your life? Prepare yourself I'm still captured by the SR-71, that Blackbird reconnaissance plane that flew 85,000 feet high. Its only defense was altitude and speed. And Jimmy, Pastor Jimmy and I have been talking about this all week, you know, to wake up every morning and just begin to pray in the Spirit, sing in the Spirit begin to gain some altitude and some speed and to just say, Lord, I'm going to soar above the circumstances. I am going to live a Christian life. Billy Thomas and John Agin talked with both of them recently. They both worked up at the test site. And I was talking about uh, how I thought that they both worked on this particular plane, and they both laughed and said, Pastor, we were just in high school when that thing was being worked on. Can you imagine that? I can't believe that thing is, has been around for that long. It's beautiful, though. I want to show you a, a picture right now of the U.S. Capitol, the cornerstone being laid. It was laid by George Washington about 229 years ago. It was on September the 18th of 1793 when... Uh, George Washington presided over the laying of the cornerstone. 
at the U.S. Capitol in Washington. So last week we talked about Jesus being our chief cornerstone, and we spoke about the legend of the rejected capstone. But I wanted you to see this today, and I want to talk to you just for a few moments about what happened back in the day. Enough of the building, this building, this incredible building that we all see, the, the Capitol building, U.S. Capitol building. Did you know it was completed in 1800? For enough for the Congress and the Supreme Court and the Library of Congress to occupy the North Wing. But Congress didn't officially occupy the Capitol building until 1803. The Capitol was ultimately finished in 1826. However, it goes entirely against the common, modern, secular narrative of the separation of church and state. That seven years prior to the Congress occupying the Capitol, the Capitol building was the location for the very first church that existed in Washington, D.C. The first church services were held inside the Capitol building on June the 19th, 1795, under the direction of Reverend M.R. Ralph, Mr. Ralph. On December the 4th of 1800, the Congress designated the chamber of the House of Representatives as the most suitable location for the church services due to the large number of people that were going to attend this church. Thomas Jefferson, when he was vice president and when he was president, they say he faithfully attended this church. I don't know if he ever listened, but uh, he went. The constitutional concern of the original framers of the Constitution regarding the separation of church and state was to prevent any president, at this time it was Jefferson, from establishing a single federal church. They had just come from that over in England, and they wanted that not to happen here. They wanted to be free to worship God without any government interference, and, and the president he assured the American people he would never do that. And then uh, the next president was Madison, and he also attended this church in the Capitol building regularly. I read this week where Jefferson rode his horse to church, but Madison came in a carriage drawn by four white horses. The Capitol was used to for church services all the way till 1860. Even Abraham Lincoln attended this church. The number of parishioners at the Capitol regularly exceeded 2,000 people. It was the largest single church in America at this time. Beginning around 1800, the services were conducted by either congressional chaplains who rotated or vi different visiting ministers came in. One minister that came in, the very first woman to hold a service in the Capitol, the first woman ever to speak in the Capitol, was an evangelist named Dorothy Ripley. She spoke at the church service in the Capitol building on January 12, 1806. President Jefferson was there, Vice President Aaron Burr, they were there, and evangelist Ripley was really sensing by the Holy Spirit an urgency that there were a lot of unsaved people in the congregation that day. 
And she gave the greatest altar call for people to turn to Jesus and to become born again. And throughout her lifetime, she was deeply involved in the movement to abolish slavery. Now, you can read all about that if you want to at ChristianHeritageFellowship.com. America was conceived as a religious nation, and the protections of the First Amendment were that the government would not ever establish a single national church. But you can tell how this has been misinterpreted to mean freedom from religion in our day rather than the freedom of religion, which is the way it was designed. Obviously, they were having church in the capital for crying out loud. But look at us now. We took prayer out of the schools and from all the government functions. We took all the religious symbols down. We've removed them. You remember the Mojave Cross? It was erected to honor our men and women who died in World War I. They died in service for this country. We took it down. Numerous nativity scenes at Christmas time are taken down. The tuition assistance provided by the government for private Christian education has been taken away. That's not what the framers of the Constitution meant. I mean, think about it. The President of the United States at that time attended church in the chamber of the House of Representatives. And that happened for 65 years after the initial laying of the cornerstone at the Capitol. And I want you to join me in this prayer right now. I put it up on the screen for you. May God cause the prayers that were offered in the Capitol to come back to life today and steer the members right now, Lord Jesus, of the House of Representatives and the Senate to follow the true cornerstone of America, the true cornerstone of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Let it be so, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Now, let's go to Corinth. As you know, we've talked about it for several weeks. There were divisions in the church. They were having... These divisions were bringing just disastrous effects, both on individuals and also the church as a whole. These people in Corinth, they're, they're jealous of each other. They're arguing with one another. They are selfish. They're arrogant. They're prideful. And so that's why Paul writes in that great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, there are five present tense verbs about the nature of agape love. And I want you to notice this. The first two, agape love acts patiently. The love of God flowing through us acts kindly. Now those are positive, ongoing actions. And the word agape appears in association with both of those words. But then Paul presents three vices Love, agape love, does not act jealously, does not boast, does not act arrogantly. And did you notice that the, the word agape doesn't appear connected to those three? Why not? Well, those are 
descriptions of vile actions which the Corinthians were actively involved in. And it's almost as if Paul can't even place the word agape anywhere near those horrible actions and horrible attitudes. They were like the polarized ends of magnets. Agape love was drawn towards patience and kindness, and it was repelled by jealousy, boasting, and arrogance. The Greek verb in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, translated boastful. It's a very interesting word. It's one of those words that sounds exactly like what it means. The Greek word, just for fun, i got to try to say it to you, perperuitai. Perperuitai. Now see, I think I just ordered that this week at a Thai restaurant. <laughs> but this word mocks those who are boasting about how well they're doing. The first syllable, pair, means I am abounding. So if you say it twice, you're just bragging. That's all there is to it. Pair, pair. I am abounding. I am abounding. In English, it's like the person who constantly uses the pronoun I. I, 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 I. Well, I've been quite successful out of all my accomplishments, I think I'm most proud of how I... Oh, shut up. <laughs> Do we all want to hear that? On and on they go to ad nauseum. And that's what was going on in this church. And they're divided. Paul, Apollos, Peter, Jesus even. They, they divide him up. Those are their heroes and, and the people are in this deep, arrogant boasting, always thinking about themselves, talking about themselves, seeking to tell others how great they are, how important they are. But remember chapter 1, 1 Corinthians one twenty six. Jesus is saying, you're not that important. Behold your calling, brothers, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. So chapter 3 that we're looking at last week and this week, verses 1 through 9, is where Paul's directing them away from thinking about themselves and their own importance and simply reminding them that you are now a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come and serve Him in this church. Verses 10 through 12 is where he directs them to think first about Jesus as the foundation of the church. 13 through 15 is where he reminds them there's a judgment coming for those who serve Christ for all their works. And what he was implying was that your jealousy, your boasting, your arrogance are wood, hay, and stubble. It's going to be burned up in the fire. So you better grow up in your faith and learn how to put Jesus Christ first. And that's the same message every one of us need to hear today. So, three quick points from here on. Number one, the worldwide body of Christ is the temple of God. The worldwide body of Christ, that's the temple of God. If you first take a look at verse 16 and 17 of our text today, it seems to be like Paul, it's one of his famous digressions. But that's because 
verse 16 and 17, they are completely misunderstood most of the time. People think these verses are referring to the individual, but it's actually referring to the corporate church at Corinth. In spite of all the immaturity, all the selfishness of this Corinthian church, it is still the temple of God. It still has the Holy Spirit in the midst of this church. And this is an even more dramatic and profound statement than if it were referring just to individual Christians. This carnal church, racked by jealousy, division, arrogance, and selfish boasting, it's still the temple of God. Now just think how daring this statement was from this Jewish rabbi who had been converted to Christ, the Apostle Paul. He says, while he's saying all this while the physical temple still is standing in Jerusalem. Now, it's only going to be there for about another decade before it's destroyed. But no Jewish person outside of Jesus Christ could or would make such a statement that the Jewish temple in Jerusalem has been surpassed and now rendered ineffective by Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. From now on, the temple is, is now distributed throughout the world through local Christian churches. Can you imagine how radical that was of a statement? So now it's not only the worldwide body of Christ as the temple of God, but point number two today, our local church is the temple of God. Many of you attended here when it was Trinity Temple. That was a good name. Well, except people thought it was a Mormon temple or a Jewish temple. But uh, that was a great name. Uh, we're not going to go back to it. But I want you to know today that we, Trinity, right here at 1000 East St. Louis, we are the temple of the living triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you realize you're sitting in the temple of God? You know what makes it the temple of God? That you're here, sitting here. Now, I just, I, I just this week was just so captured by this new discovery. I didn't know the U.S. Congress, the, the, the U.S. Capitol was used as a church for six, over 60 years. I didn't realize that that was one of the first places that we really got together as a temple of God. And, and I do want you to keep praying for a monumental move of the Spirit in America where there would once again be church services in the House of Representatives Rotunda. <laughs> Father, let America once again recognize your Son, Jesus, as the chief cornerstone, the foundation of the church, and the foundation of the United States. There's two Greek words that uh, are in the Bible used for temple. One word is not used at all in 1 Corinthians because it's referring to the entire physical temple, all the buildings and all the grounds, including the Temple Mount, where Jesus 
cleared out the, the money changers and overturned the tables and all the walls around the Temple Mount overlooking the valleys. But our word today in verse 16 and 17 is the word, and again in chapter 6, verse 19, is the word naos. Naos, N-A-O-S, refers specifically to the temple building itself and only to the temple building. But today we're looking at something of far greater significance than the temple building all the way to what the temple represented, the dwelling place of God on earth. So the naos, the way it's presented to us in the original language, it's focusing more on the holiness of the temple, the holy elements, the lampstand, the showbread, the altar. It was particularly referring to the holy of holies because that's where the mercy and grace of God was given to mankind. Can you imagine all that that Ark of the Covenant represents? Powerful place of holiness that you and I are allowed to go to every day, anytime we want to, and meet with Jesus. Now, the Jewish people could never disassociate their thinking from the Jerusalem temple. And that, friends, is what's so radical about Jesus. Remember when he said in the book of John that you can destroy this naos and, and in three days I'll raise it back up? The Jewish people went crazy over that. They were just thinking about the building. They thought what Jesus said was so incredulous because it took 46 years to build that temple. Verse 21 explains to us that Jesus was referring to his own body as the naos, the new holy of holies. Today, we actually overlook what a daring statement that was for Jesus to make and how dramatically and how significantly he changed the idea of the temple to his own body instead of using the physical building. But Jesus was God in the flesh. So from the moment of his incarnation, the location of the temple was irrevocably changed forever. He was uniquely the naos, the temple of God. After his death and resurrection, after the Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost, from the moment the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit in the upper room, the temple has had these two consistent expressions. Number one, being present any time Christians gather together, anywhere Christians gather together, that's the temple, and also inside each and every one of us individually. We are the temple of God, the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. The temple is no longer limited to one place in Jerusalem where God meets with man and forgives our sins. But now the temple of God is distributed throughout the world by each gathering of Christians and by the Holy Spirit living inside each of us as individuals. Amen. You know, I wish I had time to, to tell you this morning about another very obscure holy place for Christians. It's located in modern-day Saudi Arabia. It's where God carved out a cave for Moses that we call the cleft of the rock. He carved it out with his finger. 
It's where he met with the two greatest Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah. It's where Moses was given the Ten Commandments. And Christians, you and I, people from all over the world, should be visiting that holy site. I doubt if any of us will ever visit this place until the millennium. Meet me there. I'm going to be there a lot. I like that place. I want to find that place. But do you know why we don't have that in our Christianity as a place, a holy place where we all go and worship? It's because what God did to inhabit us and make us His temple makes it possible now that we don't have to go to the Holy of Holies anymore. We don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem. We don't have to go to that cave up in that Saudi Arabian mountain. You can commune with God while you're washing the dishes, while you're driving down the road. The presence of God belongs to us now. And our church, I mean, think about it. Even the Corinthian church, as crazy as they were, they were the temple of God. Now, I want to give you a paraphrase about one of these verses where it said that that God will destroy anyone who destroys the church. I like to say, church wreckers, God will wreck. But I want you to understand this, that this warning, I mean, we desperately need this warning today. In our local church, we must learn to live out the grace that we've been given by the Holy Spirit to be the temple of God. And then when we gather together, we, the church, we must strive to be spirit-filled, spirit-powered expressions of the temple of the living God. But just like the temple is holy, the local church, we must continually seek to live out holy lives, live in holiness as a demonstration that the Holy Spirit has filled the temple of the living God. Local churches that compete with each other selfishly or quarrel with one another over doctrine or other matters. That's a modern-day sinful expression of what was happening in the Corinthian church. And friends, we need to steer very, very clear of that. Be sure that you keep a reverence in your heart for the local church. I know we got our issues. Come on, we're humans. We're filled with humanity, but we are the people of God. We are the temple of God. And this is a very holy and reverent place. Keep that in mind. Come here with expectation. Come here to meet with God. Come here to commune with fellow believers. But come here recognizing that when you walk through those doors, the temple of God is here individually in you and corporately in all of us together. Now there was a man, uh, is a man named Gordon Fee, and in 2014, he, Gordon Fee came to uh, my university and spoke in chapel. He's brilliant. I love this guy. He, he wrote a, like a commentary on, on 1 Corinthians. He's called it the first epistle to the Corinthians. He wrote it back in 2014. Here's what he says about this threat of church wreckers, God's going to wreck. 
So the threat, which is real, is at the same time turned into an invitation for them to become what in fact they are by the grace of God, God's holy temple in Corinth. He goes on to say one of the desperate needs of the church is to recapture this vision of what it is by grace and therefore also what God intends it to be. Recapturing of this vision of its being, talking about the local church, in terms of it being powerfully indwelt by the Spirit and of its thereby serving as holy to the world. Holy in the most holistic sense. That is the church's greatest need. The first epistle to the Corinthians was expressing to us how we right here, right now, can pull this off by point number three, realizing that we are the temple of God. Verse 18 through 23 recaps what has already been said to the Corinthians. Paul's feeling a deep burden for these guys because in the midst of all of their difficulty, all of their humanity, all of their failures, uh, he still deeply loved them. He spent 18 months with these people, teaching them and preaching and getting this church going, getting it established. And he warns in that verse 18, let no one deceive himself. Now, unlike most of the times this is used in the New Testament, this warning against self-deception is very specific. If anybody thinks they're wise regarding this age and the way the world works, they should become a fool. They should become a moron. That's the word. Previously, Paul said that the wise of this world are condemned to be foolish. Now he urges Christians to throw off the desire to be wise in the worldly sense and seek to be a fool for Jesus Christ. Seek the wisdom of Jesus. Now sadly, the Corinthians are neither wise in the ways of the world nor wise before God. They're deceiving themselves because of their pride and their arrogance, thinking they're wise when they're not. Many Corinthians think that they had some kind of super spiritual thing going on, like they were super saints, and that they were also sophisticated in their own world. So that was what they were trying to do, trying to walk around being highly sophisticated, uh, be able to speak to all the philosophers, and then also kind of be somebody in the church. But they're so carnal. They're so full of pride and arrogance and jealousy and relying on their own ability to be sophisticated. And you know what? Don't let that be you. I mean, these folks in Corinth were a piece of work. They were divided. They had dissension. And you know what? It was making it impossible for the Holy Spirit to operate. Listen, when bitterness enters a church body... Love just seems to walk right out the door. 
God's truth just can't be heard in that kind of an atmosphere. So again, before you come to church, check your heart. We can't afford to have God on the outside knocking on our doors to be allowed in. Hatred and strife will destroy the church. So take a deep look inside your heart today. Now, Julie drew this picture for me. I gave her an idea. And the caption to this is, I'm on my way to get the speck out of somebody else's eye. <laughs> the log in my own eye is so big, I have to have the back door of my car open because I got this huge log in my own eye. But bless God, you got a little speck. I got to come over there and help you with your speck. Friends, that attitude will reduce our church to a series of disconnected ruins. The root cause in Corinth was the worship of intellectual worldly wisdom. So Paul quotes Job chapter 5, verse 13, and he says that God traps the wise in their own cleverness, in their own cunning schemes, and they will be thwarted. Psalms 94.11 is the next verse that Paul quotes. The Lord knows people's thoughts. He knows they are worthless. Now, some people, you know who they are. I hope it's not you. But some people excel at outsmarting other people, manipulating others for their own selfish purposes. It seems like no one can ever catch them in their schemes, but the Bible is telling us today that God uses their exact schemes to snare people in a trap of their own making. The two greatest examples of this in the Bible are the mom who was willing to have her baby cut in half in front of King Solomon because she wasn't the real mom. And the second one is Nathan the prophet sharing with David how a man had many sheep, but he chose to butcher the only little sheep another man had instead of his own. King David is incensed and says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan says, that man is you. See, that's how God's going to do it. God's going to get them. God's, I mean, everybody's going to have a reckoning day, believe me. And we hope it happens while you're still here on the planet. You do not want to stand before God on reckoning day and have to give an account for the way you've manipulated and hurt not only other people, but the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pride will cause you to come and listen to a teaching like this just so you can criticize the way I delivered the message. Pride will cause you to evaluate the weightiness of my oratory rather than just being humble enough to listen and ask the Lord right now, Lord, would you speak to me about what's going on inside of my heart? Lord, will you show me where I need to change? That should be our prayer with any sermon that we listen to. But you know what happens? Intellectual pride cuts us off from each other. It's not going to unite us. Paul urges the man who would be wise to become a fool. In other words, he's urging him to humble himself enough 
to learn. Mr. Know-it-all can't be taught a thing. Plato said, He is the wisest man who knows himself to be very ill-equipped for the study of wisdom. I recently went back to my alma mater, Vanguard University, saw a former professor, and he asked me, Randy, when you were here, what was the best thing you learned during your time at Vanguard? And you know what? (laughs) The Lord gave me a really neat answer because I I just said, well, the best thing I learned is how much I didn't know. And he felt like they had succeeded in helping me because that's what you need to learn over and over and over. There's so much I don't know. Now the old proverb says it best. Listen to this. He who knows not and knows not that he knows not is a fool. Avoid him. He who knows not and knows that he knows not is a wise man. Teach him. You know, friends, when we identify ourselves with a certain party the way the Corinthians did with Paul and Apollos, you know what we're doing? We're accepting slavery. When in fact we are kings and queens. We are princes and princesses. We belong to Him. We've been called to live limitless lives, but we limit ourselves. Why would you surrender yourself to some little splinter of a party when you could have possessed a fellowship and a love as wide as the universe itself? You know, I was praying about this this week, and I thought, Boy, that would be a great time to bring up, if we could have enough honesty in this room right now, bring up a Republican who hates Democrats and a Democrat who hates Republicans and have them shake hands right here in front of God and everybody. Don't be that person. Don't be that person. Don't hate. Sure, you can hate their... their, the other party's uh, politics. But you can't hate the person. What's wrong with you? Don't you know who we are? We are the temple of God. We belong to each other. Be bigger than that. Remember that these church members are, are being called into the deep richness of God. Paul is painting the most beautiful church on a mountaintop with the Corinthian sins in the darkest colors down in the misty lowlands. Are we not rich? When verse 23 says, everything belongs to us and we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Can it get any better than that? Don't you know who you are? Don't be a little person. (laughs) We're bigger than that. Oh, my goal in life is to be as big as Pam one day. She's the biggest. She has the greatest ability to to just walk the high road. And I'm down here going, help me up, honey. Help, Help me get up there. You know, throughout this entire 
passage, Paul concludes this portion by reassuring the Corinthians all that they have in Jesus Christ. And he's telling them, all things are yours. And he's telling all of us today, all things are yours. And it's not just a statement of individual blessing, but it's a possession that we in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as a whole should all grab a hold of. Each local church is owned and possessed by Jesus Christ. Now not only does he own each individual Christian through his death, burial, and resurrection, but he owns and possesses each local church. Paul mentions the three men around whom the Corinthians are rallying, Paul, Apollos, and Peter. And then he drifts off into five major areas of concern of the Christian life. He brings up in these last verses of chapter 3, the world, life, death, the present, and the future. Sounds a bit like Romans 8, 38 and 39, doesn't it? Where he says, none of these things will ever separate us from the agape love of God in Christ Jesus. Because we possess all things through Christ. Listen, if God our Father didn't spare even His only one and only begotten Son so that He could give us all things, why should any of us ever again be afraid of the world, life, death, the present, or the future? These five areas are our arenas of defeat. As much as we try to live in the present, eventually the present is going to reach up and bite you like a snake. No one controls the future. No one can predict the future with any real accuracy. Life and death, especially death, is the enemy that defeats all of us. The world is a constant temptation. It's a constant enemy. But for the Christian, for the Christ follower... Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, every one of these areas can become an area of victory for us. Jesus Christ owns every area that defeats man just as he owns us and he causes every enemy sphere and creation to work out in favor. Because why? Because that's who he is, the God who works all things together for our good, to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. So we as a church, who are we? We are the spirit-filled, spirit-empowered temple of the living God. So let's walk in the power of the spirit. Let's live holy lives because Trinity Life Center is the temple of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for making us your temple. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us when we invite Jesus to be the Lord and Master and Savior of our lives. And we, corporately, together, as we join our hearts, Father, this should be the place every week, every Sunday when we gather like this, there ought to be a blaze of glory that goes up.
Father, don't let this size of this building intimidate us. This is the sanctuary of God. This is where we come to worship. This is where we come to praise, to give you glory. Father, help us get our eyes off of each other when we come to the house of the Lord. When we come together to worship, oh, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that every one of us would be aware that there's an audience of one. We're here to worship you and no one else. We could care less what anybody thinks about the way that we worship. Now we're going to do it decently and in order. But if we feel like we need to kneel, we kneel. If we're going to want to lay prostrate on the ground, we lay on the ground in your presence. If we want to dance, we dance. If we want to lift our hands, we lift our hands. If we want to shout, we shout. God, help us to get over ourselves and just be who we are. We are the temple of God. We are the chosen generation. We are the royal priesthood. We are the holy nation. We are the peculiar people that have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. Help us to live that out. Yes, we're still human. Yes, we're going to make our mistakes. But every day, oh God, let us begin to gain altitude and speed. Father, let us begin to learn how to pray in the Spirit, how to be led by the Spirit. Glory, 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 glory to your holy name. Hallelujah. Isn't the Lord marvelous? Isn't He wonderful? Isn't He beyond our imagination? Isn't He beyond our comprehension.